Hello, uh, welcome to the 84th episode of From Alpha to Omega. This is going out on uh, Google on YouTube with uh, live, so this will not have the usual intro music. I have with me today uh, David Zachariah. David is a researcher in Uppsala University in uh, Sweden, uh, specializing in machine learning, but in his spare time, he also does a bit of political economy research. David, how did you find yourself working in this kind of stuff? Um, it's a, I guess it's a weird story. I must have randomly entered um, uh, something on socialism on Google once and found a, a book by Paul Cotshot and Alan Cottrell. It was about plan, planning macroeconomic systems, essentially, how you build an egalitarian e economy. And it contained a lot of math in the footnotes at least to me at the time I was in high school. Um, and I decided to learn what what is required to um, perform macroeconomic planning. Um, so I'd learn about linear algebra and input-output tables, et cetera. And that caught my interest in all these debates around political economy, uh, Marxian political economy, et cetera. So uh, I sort of fell into it by accident, but uh, I've stayed interested ever since. Well, that's interesting because I did the opposite. I've done a degree in mathematics and uh, I'm actually reading that very book at the moment. So it's like I've done what you're doing in reverse. <laughs> okay. Um, so you've done some of your work uh, on, on your political economy stuff, some empirical research on on Marx's political economy um, through the kind of lens of uh, statistical uh, dynamics uh, statistical mechanics is that the correct term yeah that's probably yeah. the accurate term yeah so um can you talk about the two men who kind of started this field which sometimes is kind of nowadays called econophysics but they don't tend to get the the um acclaim that uh some of the other econophysicists get but these are the two two people farjun farjuan and macover right uh, yeah, so a bit of the about the background. Fadjun and Makover are uh, two um, Israeli origin uh, mathematicians. Um, they were heavily involved in the Israeli left, uh, one of the early groups, dissident groups, to realize Israel was a settler colonial state. Um, somehow, somehow Fadjun got involved in uh, debates in political economy among Marxists and Sraffians and realized this their whole framework and their whole uh, conception of the economy was in many ways flawed, or at least the way they formalized it. And uh, inspired by their colleague Langston, um, they embarked on a complete reconstruction of how political economy should be done. And so they had a background, or they had knowledge about mathematical descriptions of statistical mechanics, um, and used some of the insights for, uh, from statistical me mechanics essentially as powerful analogies to develop something new. Um, yep. So, can you tell us what uh, statistical mechanics is for the layman? Right. So it's a way to look at. Uh, large systems with a lot of degrees of freedom. It has so the the t classical example is gas with uh, gas contained in a um, closed uh, container. So you've got millions of different molecules bouncing around. So to describe this entire system requires to specify each molecule with its position and velocity, um, and that becomes, for sake of analysis, becomes essentially intractable and. Um, requires a lot of strange assumptions to 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 say something detailed about the system. So instead, statistical mechanics says, okay, we can't say anything about individuals, but we can say something about the distribution of how the individuals behave. For instance, what's the average velocity of the um, molecules? And you can do that because there are, even though there are lots of degrees of freedom, there are some overall constraints on how they can behave. There's only a certain amount of energy contained in this, which they can share. And so you're essentially viewing large-scale, uncoordinated uh, systems with uh, many degrees of freedom through the lens of distributions, statistical distributions, instead of individual descriptions. 
so we see here a kind of a natural map to the world of economics where we have our micro economics and our macro economics yeah you could argue that um uh, what is i think one of the beautiful things about it is that unlike traditional microeconomics statistical mechanics makes very few assumptions about these individual elements of the system you don't have to assume much about i mean a molecule whatever there's no intent there it just has very basic laws in which they collide and operate there could be all kinds of um circumstances when molecules are behaving in one way or the other sometimes they go up in velocity sometimes down due to all kinds of local effects but uh, statistical mechanics uh, essentially is agnostic to these things it produces powerful predictions irrespective of the assumptions or very detailed assumptions and so this is very different than microeconomics which assumes very detailed uh, assumptions about um, um, uh, behavior of individual units say firms or consumers or whatever so what were the kind of uh what were the key findings then of of macover and fartune's work well uh, one of the initial motivations for their what became their book um was a, a way to view the question of profit and profit rates um a lot of uh political economy up to that point had assumed that um in competition you will have capital moving from uh, low low profit to high profit sectors and so you will have some sort of equalization of profitability across the economy and um, it may not uh, there's a soft version of that where there's just a tendency but um, the, the one of the common assumptions then is that therefore we can replace all the profit rates in this economy and this uh, assume they're all equal and study the system from this hypothetical point of view, so its influence on prices, etc. Um, they broke with all this and said, um, essentially, that we have to view profit rates as something that has a dispersion always. There will be equal, equal, equalizing tendencies and tendencies that pull profit rates apart, change, churning of um, technological innovation, competition, etc. Always pushes profit rates up and down. So what you can say is sort of stable, maybe, is a distribution of profit rates. So there's never the profit rate going up or down. There's always a multitude of profit rates contained in a distribution. That is one of their first um, conceptual breaks, articulating what the distribution of profit rates ought to be, its shape, and uh, its main determinants. Uh, and that broke with the whole tradition up to that point. And then their second contribution in terms of the overall framework of the book is to start connecting the random or disorganized behavior of market economies to the classical um, labor theory of value uh, that you find in classic political economy. Um, so basically the theory that there's a real cost to reproducing goods and services. You can quantify that in labor time and that this deterministic quantity will be related to the random fluctuation uh, fluctuating prices that you observe on the market so here is the huge change also in viewing there is not a price for say a pizza or um, a car unlike the previous formalisms there's always a multitude of prices and you have to build a theory of um, how how that interacts with labor value essentially so how did they set up this? Uh, so how how did they set up their system to get these uh, kind of core predictions out of it? Like, yeah. So for, with respect to the profit rate, um, they are more building analogies and and arguing from that point of view. They didn't do it very stringently there, <clears throat> but if you look at the overall argument, it's like they started up by saying, okay, the profit rate, if you take look at the economy, there are a multitude of profit rates. So that's the analogy to the gas molecules bouncing around with different velocities. You have firms with different rates of profit. That's the analogy of velocity. And some will be high and some will be low. Well, a few of them, when you take up the rate of profit, very few can sustain themselves long um, with a negative rate of profit. So the distribution should have very little mass or probability 
that is on the negative profit rate side. So that already constrains the distribution to being mostly positive or non-negative at least. And then they argue that there's essentially some overall macroeconomic constraints. There's only so much labor available. There's only so much implicitly state money available. There's over a say period of month, uh, a month, there's only so much uh, demand that these firms can win in their competition. This will constrain, this will be analogous to an energy constraint is sort of how they argue. And then they go back to statistical mechanics and say, well, if you have such constraints on a system with many degrees of freedom, you typically get something like a gamma distribution. It's a certain of a skew shape. Um, and that's what they postulate as a distribution for the profit rates. And you get distributions sort of that that type in, in, in the real world, you look at empirically. So the empirical research has looked at, say, what countries over what time period are, what, what does it show? How close does it fit to the expected gamma distribution? Um, there has been more work by Ian Wright on the theoretical extensions of this, um, whether gamma is appropriate or not. But if you look at um, the work that I did on rates of profit, on flow rates of profit was essentially um, most of the OECD countries, so the advanced capitalist countries, starting from around 1968 from the UK up to the 1990s and early 2000s. They all showed a huge or significant dispersion of profit rates. You always have a big a, a variety of profit rates. And um, they tend to be skewed, all of them. Um, um, so the, the empirical evidence for their initial prediction is, is uh, the evidence pretty strong, I would say. But I would say that their gamma hypothesis is more uh, questionable, and it was more of a working hypothesis than anything else. So you mentioned some other research by, who it, did you say, Ian Wright? Ian Wright, yeah. Yeah, and what, what type of distribution did he, uh, he propose? He came up with a very com complex one, but based on fundamental principles. It, it, it didn't end up as any of the standard distributions. But um, you get something, I think, closer to uh, heavy tail distributions. I cannot remember now, but he has done some simulation work, agent-based modeling, where he reproduces what you find in many economies as well. I should That's say right. one thing about um, the way that um, Farge and Macover view their distribution. It's not that they view the profit rates as a distribution over all firms, because then you get thousands of small firms that earn all kinds of profit rates. Instead, they view the distribution in terms of the capital stock invested in the economy. So if you have a big company, say Volvo in Sweden, that will take up a big share of the distribution because it's measured as a, as a fraction of total capital invested. And so small firms will have little impact on this big distribution of capital invested. Okay, fair enough. Um, so what else, um, so, can we get towards their work on uh, dealing with um, the uh, trying to show that the labor was basically the source of value and the determinant of price? Right. <clears throat> so uh, that was probably their initial motivation to to write the book um, because there was huge debates about the relevance of the labor theory of value. Um, I guess I can get to that later. But uh, the way they uh, got to it was just to accept that prices are random quantities from the point of view of the economy. Whenever you buy a cup of tea or whatever it is, it de it's dependent on so many factors that from the macroeconomic point of view, it's purely random. But random does not mean arbitrary. Uh, there are certain constraints. And essentially, that's what they um, tried to derive. and. Uh, the, they derived it by saying, okay, let's look at every transaction that happens over, say, a month. Let's record what is the price of that transaction and the labor value of that uh, or the labor content of that good or service that was bought. And so the, it's a basically a price to labor value ratio. And if that ratio is, is random, obviously, it'll have a distribution. If that distribution is very narrow, then most of the ratios are very similar. That means price is tends to be quite proportional to labor value. 
and they set up without any any they centered on on fundamental principles they could deduce that it should it should have a mean based on certain macroeconomic conditions and a dis dispersion based on the probability that you can that you will not be able to make, meet the wage bill essentially when you in production um, so they can derive they derive from first principles what the distribution of price to labor content should be and set that out as a prediction and um, then it was subsequently tested over the years and so if we should boil down to something they have essentially formulated a probabilistic or stochastic version of the labor theory of value one that takes into account the fact that capitalist economies have in uh, are dis dis disordered disorganized and have never a single price for um for any good or service that's bought or sold but in the whole we see a, a strong link exactly so that they deduce there should be a fairly narrow distribution of pro price to labor content and so therefore there should be a fairly strong link between them um, implying a correlation between them and then subsequent studies made by Anwar Shaikh and many others, uh, Paul Cockshot, and, and then later myself, show that over many, many countries, all the advanced countries, uh, not all, most of the advanced countries, um, and over a significant period of time, you find a very strong correlation between the size of industry outputs in price and the size of industry output in labor. And this is all in in line with the predictions that they had and it's better than any prediction you can find in, for any other value that you could set up steel value whatever and so this is um what, what what's the correlation like did i see is like 93 percent correlation or something yeah it's interesting so you get something close to what apparently david ricardo predicted you get the correlations uh the correlation coefficient being something like 93 95 percent etc um so it's a very tight correlation um more or less what they predicted yeah it's it's very very interesting isn't it like particularly when we think about say um all the attacks that have come against say marx's work primarily they've always been on well they can't attack the empirical research because it lines up and stacks up so they got to kind of attack it for its logical consistency Mm. You know, so and it, it it's interesting that, you know, when you when we boil this down to, uh, say, a, a statistical mechanics thing is like a rewriting of Marx's theory, but not from his own point of view, uh, and it still still pushes out the the same predictions and and the empirics empirical work backs it up. It's very strong. Right. Uh, well, I think it it. It shows the strength of the original questions that these economists, including Marx, post. So, yes, I think it's it's a fruitful, viable research program that that these questions generate. But then the tools have been developed since then, and why shouldn't we take the best tools available? It happens to come from partially statistical mechanics now. You know, it's it's very interesting. Um, so. What other work have ha, in this area has uh, borne fruit? Well, it's it's a bit strange that they essentially came up with something that's very close to what we today would call econophysics, but their work was largely ignored among Marxian economists. They couldn't understand it. Their their publisher never promoted their book, um, so it, it fell into obscurity. But then, more or less, this stuff this sort of um, conception was reinvented later in the under the rubric of econophysics with actual physicists working on it and some of the more interesting related uh, work has been done by you probably know victor yakovenko who has looked at um income distributions from a similar point of view where you have I an over i don't know this guy so can you tell us about this research okay so uh i would say he, he did some path-breaking research i think it was in the mid 90s where he he actually he took this sort of metaphor or analogy one step further he says okay suppose uh, in market exchange you have individuals who exchange goods so therefore they exchange money and so you can think of them as um, molecules that collide 
if they exchange money, it's conserved. It's not being destroyed. It's just transferred from one to the other. Well, that's uh, using the analogy of energy being transferred at, between two molecules that collide. But there's no loss of energy in the ideal gas. Uh, from that very simple idea of market agents that collide and adding a constraint that there's only a certain amount of money available uh, as a sum uh, for a fixed period of time, you get immediately a distribution of income across agents. You get something called the Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution, it's a form of exponential distribution. And so it tells you what fraction of the population will be in high income brackets and low income brackets by this very simple principle. I would argue oversimplistic, but just as a fruitful hypothesis, that's what he, the theory predicts. Then Yakovenko and his researchers went out into the, went to the data sets and found exactly this distribution for about 97% of the population follow a Boltzmann-Gibbs distribution. So is, this is the idea then that some people will do better out of these exchanges than others, but there's, like this it's a it's a closed kind of system essentially it's just exactly yeah i mean from this random point of view there will always be people on the top from pure market exchange in this from this simplistic point of view and there will always be people people on the bottom from market exchange so okay so and and the idea here is that like you might have say uh, a trader like a you know an antiques trader who really knows the right market price for these things and can buy them cheap and sell them high uh, and he'll do very well out of this kind of thing, but there will be losers on the opposite side. Exactly. But it's a kind of a closed system, and it'll those ninety-seven percent of people, their income at the end of say a, a random bouncing around for a year will be distributed in a certain way. Exactly, exactly. And so it's it's amazing that this this simplistic idea holds in, in empirically. Of course, the mechanisms in the real world probably is not the same, but uh, those simple powerful ideas can generate something testable and and more accurate than any neoclassical theory can pr produce. Now, I should say a, a, a follow-up to that. There's a very interesting following research that Yakovenko did. So I told you that this distribution, the Boltzmann-Gibbs, holds for 97% of the population. Tell us about the other 3%. The other 3%. <laughs> what happened to them? Yeah. Well, Look at these guys. <laughs> it turns out uh, they, their, um, this income group, follows a completely dist different distribution, the um, Pareto law. So it's like a heavy tail distribution. It's closer to what you find in the distribution of earthquakes. And when you look at who are these people, essentially they are derived more or less from property income. So incomes based on derived from property follows a completely different law. Uh, statistical law that is. It is it's one that where Yakovenko argues, and it's because their incomes are multiplicative. You earn as a percentage of your capital, for instance, whereas uh, the other income groups are not earning in the same the same type. Um, and so it's curious that uh, essentially he his research prefigures the Bernie Sanders uh, slogan of the ninety nine percent. It's actually the ninety seven percent. And then you have a 3% that earns income in a different way. And he, Yakovenko, says simply that this is a two-class system based on purely statistical arguments. And he calls one class basically the thermal class that follows like a thermal-style distribution, and the other ones are a super-thermal class. And um, following research by Anwar Shaikh showed essentially that the entire income inequality can be largely predicted about from how big a share of national income comes from property. Once you know that fraction, you know quite well how big this super heavy um, income group is. So this, uh, when you say property, I presume you mean like uh, lands that can have rent and shares that have dividends. It's, it's predominantly, it seems, shares. Um, but uh, um, I think Anmar Shaikh's uh, work has shown even broader income sources. But uh, the reason I say shares is that Yakovenko's first work showed that while the 97% income distribution is pretty stable over time, from the 90s up to the 2000s, the super income group fluctuates, their distribution jumps up and down, and this, these jumps are more or less correlated with the stock market exchange, uh, stock market uh, indices. Uh, so it seems like 
stocks, incomes from stocks are a big part of that. That's very interesting. Um, I think I've talked to somebody before, and he mentioned some of this research, but I wasn't aware of of the guy's name. It, it, it is quite it's quite startling that you know simple um, models that have not very many um, preconditions set upon them uh, can give such predictable uh, you know results, you know empirically backed up results in the real world when we think of how complex our system is how and it just shows you essentially how reducible it is exactly yeah that's and that's uh, some of the early research in statistical mechanics equipped essentially the same thing i think um it's cited in in Fardun and macro's book kinchin who's one of the pioneers he said it's almost as if we we sort of deliberately make the system as uh, we're so deliberately ignorant of the details of the system yet produce such accurate predictions um so it was noted already by physicists that there's something to it with when it comes to these large-scale systems that are, in many ways, uncoordinated. Yeah, and no, it's very interesting. Is is there um what does it say about the the falling rate of profit? Is there anything coming out out of out of the research on that? Um, yeah. So they, in um, Farjun and Mako's book, they do devote uh, some time. Uh, to that and their ending uh, ending chapters uh, <clears throat> so as i said they they had derived this, this or they, they postulated a distribution of profit rates and of course there's an average then or a mean expected profit rate and that you can you can deduce what kind of constraints will be set on that profit rate and um, they did it and of course it, it becomes something very close to what marx was doing a ratio of living to dead labor a fraction of labor that goes to surplus um, and they argue that uh, while there are tendencies to um, that that could bring this profit rate down, there should be also equalizing ten oh, tendencies of building it, bring it up as well. What happened subsequently was that um, some initial work by by Alan Cottrell and Paul Cockshot pushed me in the direction of actually trying to derive how will this profit rate behave, this average profit rate, and find the main determinants. And um, I did some work on that, and that became what is known the what we call the equilibrium profit rate. So it's essentially telling you where is the average profit rate going to be as a function of how efficient the economy is, how how fast its labor force is growing, and how much profits is being reinvested. And curiously, the the the, the determinants of the profit rate is not dependent on how much or oh, how big the wage share is. So in other words, if workers demand or manage to win 90% of the value added or 10% of the value added, it will not change the trajectory of the profit rate. It will inexorably reaches, push itself to a certain level set by this equilibrium rate. So the work of Fardion and Macor led to more interesting predictions about average profitability how would it evolve over time? And those predictions were also then tested in, in some work that I did for the advanced economies with certain implications. So let me let me let me uh, ask you a few questions on that just to clarify it up. So this you're saying that the rate of profit, um the sorry, the rate of share of value added, so basically the level of exploitation of the worker won't change. Essentially, you're saying the direction of the profit rate. Yeah. So what happens is that <clears throat> But maybe how maybe this the how steep or, or rapid it, it climbs or declines. Right. So let me put it like this: if if we could fix the um, productivity growth, if we could fix the great the um, the growth of uh, labor and the investments, then the growth of labor being the total number of hours worked by in the economy. Exactly. If okay. you if those were given, so to speak, the the profit rate will converge to a fixed number no matter what. It doesn't matter that the, the workers are demanding more or less. So wage restraint will not save the day. So that's actually a political implication from, from the theory. That means um, under these technical uh, conditions of production and um, avail availability of labor, that, that was the fundamental constraints of how profitability will evolve. And no matter how much the workforces um, restraining its wage demands, 
it will not change the trajectory of the profit rate. Okay, so the idea is that, but the the rate of change would be changed. <laughs> um, yeah. If I'm if I'm saying that right, like the, how fast it will reach the yeah the the bottom of this asymptotic curve or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Will be exactly. quicker. The rate of change can be modulated by wage demands, obviously. So this begs the question: Then is it always a decreasing rate? And the answer is no. And I, I would put it like this: It's essentially a question of if, when capitalists reinvest profits into production, will it raise productivity, and, or will productivity growth be high, and will the growth of labor be high? If the answer is yes, then the rate of profit will rise. The average rate of profit will rise. So explain that. So it's basically this 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 um, equilibrium profit rate is is like a it's just a ratio of how fast productivity grows plus how fast the growth the labor force grows divided by effectively the reinvestment share so reinvestments brings down the profit rate and productivity and growth of labor brings up the profit rate okay so this is just essentially restating in a formula what marx would say are the equalization equalizing tendencies against their fall in rate of profit uh, yes but i think it's making it more precise it's telling under what conditions more precisely will you have a rising and falling profit rate and so there's no tendency for one or the other it's given by other factors that are technological and well, let's say social demographic marx but, did not really say i mean he sort of more or less implied that there will always be a downward tendency and everything else is counter tendencies but you could or you could just flip around the argument and say the other thing around it really depends on variables that are more external did he not make um uh cases for the like so the general tendency of you will not there will be a kind of a a limit to productivity I suppose productivity is the word is the wrong is the wrong word, but perhaps product. Well, when you say productivity, we're not saying the we're not essentially saying we're saying how intensively that that worker can actually work. Yeah, as well, opposed it, to how productive the in the the capital element is. No, the, it, it, the fixed it, capital. I should say, yeah, it's the worker side. It's it's how efficient labor is becoming. Yes, exactly. So, so it's, it's making this it's making Marx's statements much more precise and what does it mean when li living labor increases, etc. Yes, so when we say just to be very clear here for my own for my own uh, understanding what we're saying is that the uh, the productivity of the worker but we're not saying like the worker working at the same rate with a new machine is more productive are we? Um are yeah, we yes, saying yes. That? So if, yes, if there's technical change the productivity will rise. Uh, so the output per labor, unit of labor will rise. Yes, okay. But so we're not, so, yeah. the intensity, are we talking about intensity of labor? Yeah, that could that in, intensity could uh, be another aspect of raising productivity, of course. You could you could squeeze out more work per hour from someone. So if, so that's still kind of, that's kind of unusual then. So we're saying if, if, we, if, we, if we keep the intensity of labor, static yeah um so i think like what marx would have said forgive me if i'm i'm wrong on this but that the you know there's only a limit to the intensity of you can get out of a, of a person absolutely yeah. that will lead to a, a kind of limit to this productivity element well that's but where uh, Fargo and mackward uh, clearly show that yeah that's that's uh that is an incomplete argument so yes intensity can you can only squeeze out so much from people until there's fatigue or loss of production but productivity can be enhanced by or the, uh, the efficiency of labor can be enhanced by augmenting lab uh, labor with new machines or different organizational production etc etc it's interesting like I'm, I'm still kind of struggling to see how if we keep intensity static at a constant level and we increase uh, investment um one would have thought that the, then the ratio of labor to capital would be increasing, and thus the labor content of each element would decrease, or each product. 
and the profit rate would be under attack from that side. But you're saying that if they increase the investment, um, it can actually increase the profit rates at a systemic level. Only so insofar that as you get more labor into the system and you and or you get more efficient labor out of it. But the moment investments no longer give such yields, productivity, uh, the profitability will decline. And so this ratio essentially predicts how much, how will it go? Which way will it go once you know the, these variables? Okay, so, so the idea is like with, with your increased investment, you're able to apply more labor in the economy. Exactly, that will be a factor that raises it. And then you can imagine what happens. So China, for instance, you will have huge supplies of labor that can enter the industrial workforce from the agriculture, uh, from uh, the rural parts of the country. So that term will raise their profitability. But in countries where these sources are depleted, there will be no rise of labor, essentially. The, the labor, massive labor sources will de be depleted. You cannot go beyond population growth. And so as a, an economy develops and industrializes, the effect of labor on profitability will vanish over time. And uh, all, all that's left essentially is how much can investments enhance productivity. And you can see this, interestingly, this prediction for um, Japan and, and contrasted with other countries that have uh, higher um, population growths and see what is the effect of this labor growth term and you can see in Japan it's zero because there is no population growth. So what does any, some of your work had some predictive stuff about GDP growth rates. Is this what you're talking about here with the profit rate and how it, how it impacts? Uh, one second, the, uh, the connection is a bit poor. Can I, can I reconnect? Um, yeah. One second. So Dave has hopped off there. Um, I think he's going to join again in a minute. Hopefully, we'll uh, you'll be able to hear a bit better. A little bit better, yeah. It's like a package drop, so I don't know what's happening. Okay, you back? Yeah. Cool. Um, so, does this tie in? So, this uh, this profit rate, this what you called the um, what was the name for your special profit rate? It was the I think we called it the equilibrium, prop equilibrium dynamic profit dynamic rate. I don't know. Yeah, it has some name. And uh, is that that is essentially Okay, so that, that, that proper rate, does this tie into then what we can expect from GDP growth rates? No, it's a bit different in that um, it's connected in that productivity, productivity obviously enters into GDP growth rate. But here the rate of reinvestment matters. And so um, you could in principle have, um, you could have in, in principle high growth and declining profitability up to a point at least. So they're not directly connected. Of course, over time, what happens is you could think of a transition in which a capitalist economy to maintain profitability will lower its reinvestment and find a new balance in which productivity is low, but, but reinvestment is low. And so the, the rate of profit is now maintained at some new stable level. What you find then is that the, the economy will no longer grow at this rap, rapid rate. So the economy is becoming effectively more parasitic in that the surplus of the economy is no longer being reinvested but consumed by the uh, capitalist class. And perhaps it's just like keeping it at a, it's not investing in essentially new technology but just in keeping um, a depreciation at bay. Exactly, yeah. And the rest is going to luxury consumption. Well, is there anything else that we haven't talked about, Dave? We've gone through quite a, a lot of stuff there. Um, um, so this is interesting because I've done a lot of uh, interviews with people about the falling rate of profit and some a lot of stuff on the uh, empirical research of it. Um, and you know the the tendency across a lot of these different countries we've seen is um, you know you know say from England I think it was in the high fifty percent in the eighteen forties or something down to. Uh, I think even mine, maybe even negative in the 1970s. I think now it's around 10 or 11 percent. That um, it seems. It seems from what you're saying, do you think that it's uh, like it, 
do you think that it's an, a lack of understanding of the capitalist class on how to maintain profit rates? Um, because your research would, would kind of point to, you could essentially manage it at any kind of level you would wish. Well, uh, yes and no. So you couldn't be necessarily manage it at any level because those depends on technological factors. If you reinvest, how much will productivity be? Well, we don't know. It depends on the face of technology. Industrial production, electrification, these things all change this uh, balance. So in that sense, no one can essentially say manage it. Um, but that's one aspect of it. That, that's, but, but again, so what, what are we trying to manage even if we try to? It's the average profit rate. No one can manage the average profit rate. Everyone, every capitalist manages a bunch of firms which have all different profit rates competing with other ones. And everyone's trying to stay on top of the other. So you get a constant scrambling of profit rates and there's no macroeconomic coordination in that sense. Um, so it's out of that intermarket competition looking for new technological opportunities that you get new balances of uh, the average profit rate. And so if the average profit rate goes up and down, there could still be a lot of firms are earning huge profit rates or and, and same time low profit rates. That's very good. But um, let's say, for example, we have a, another actor like, say, the state in the... Could the state uh, manage uh, investment of research and development and stuff you know, not not exactly, but you know, maintaining certain levels of investment could that have a and so increasing the say technological state of the the businesses in their in their country could 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 that be managed um, could that be managed better by capitalist states to try and uh, approximate levels for the most important determinants of this profit rate yeah i, I think so and that would require industrial planning and um, i think post-war europe uh, and, and japan shows such attempts to actually modernize the economy at the one hand keeping capital owners happy on the other hand developing state capacities and um, overall growth so i think that attempt to modernize the capitalist economies after world war ii is such an attempt. Um, it may not be targeting average profit rates, but certainly is trying to make sure that uh, the business confidence was uh, healthy. Um, yeah, so I would say that. Uh, maybe I should say, and I, I mean, related to that, it's, I don't, the evidence for the United States, at least, is not, and that's the longest time series I've seen since about the um, Civil War. Um, there, there is no evidence that there were, the profit rates were once upon a time very high and then there was like a progressive decline to what is today. Rather, you see something closer to the long waves of Kontrajev. You see periods, I think, after um, the Civil War where it's high, it goes down to the Depression, and then things restart. And many time series start after World War II, and that's why it looks like the profit rate's always declining. But it's actually just another wave. And uh, if once you have that perspective, this inexorable decline of the profit rate is a bit, uh, is an overstatement. You really have to look at wider factors. So that's interesting. Um, so, like, I, I think I've seen quite a bit of research. There's an Argentinian guy called, um, oh my God, his name has slipped me now. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but he's done ones for a, a, like, I think at least 15 different countries over, I think like the last hundred years. And they pretty much all tend to follow the same rate in the same direction. And he's done a world level of an amalgamated one as well, which tends to, but what you're trying to say is that essentially the conditions have changed uh, of those main determinants of, of, of your, um, your underlying, uh, sorry, I keep forgetting the name you had for your profit rate. Do <laughs> I think it's equilibrium rate. The equilibrium <laughs> profit rate, yeah. So that, uh, that well, I suppose Marx himself says, that, like, you know, in his in his stuff on the foreign rate of profit, that it's a tendency and it can be bashed up and down just as well. Exactly, yeah. I think we would, I mean, as a research program, it will be clear to ourselves, we don't say as a tendency to fall, but really ask ourselves, what are the main determinants? 
and under what historical phases does it actually push down no matter what? And that's quite interesting. After World War II, you have a clear tendency downwards. And it's not clear exactly what are the conditions, but it seems like the particular production technology set that was around the time, you know, uh, with mass scale production, industrial production, that has sort of um, reinvestment there no longer gives those productivity gains anymore. And therefore, you see this long-term decline. But you can imagine if the capital stock was partially destroyed and rebuilt again, you could reset some of those variables. And that's arguably what happened after World War II. Very good. Um, I'm just looking here to try and see that the, the Macover book is seems to be um, out of print and not... Um, not even available secondhand on Amazon, as far as I can see. It, this is the one that's called um, The Laws of Chaos. Yeah, it's a strange title, but yeah, that, that's it. It was, uh, I think, New Left Books or Verso published it in 1983. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's it's unusual that it doesn't exist. I'm presumed there's a, a PDF of it somewhere. There is a PDF, yeah. I have a, is that how you read it? No, I actually, it? I, I actually managed to get one of the few Amazon copies. And then when I met Far uh, Mac over, he signed it. <laughs> it was a rarity. So, <laughs> incidentally, the, the book is published the same year I'm, I'm born. So, uh, very rock star. <laughs> yeah, very rock star. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's a. Uh, I, I I hate reading books in PDF. I've been doing it a lot lately, and I despise it. But yeah. uh, it's kind of hard in your eyes. Um, but. Uh, yeah, no, so that, that's great. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about? We've talked about a lot of stuff. Um, well, it's not directly related. I mean, one. I guess you have had other podcasts about it, but one thing is about clarifying about the labor value, What, the, how you can... I don't know if you discussed it as a... Uh, labor value as a field property. Okay, yeah, far ahead. Well, anyway, it's, it's just something I noted down. Uh, in that it, it's been taken for granted what... I think the layman understanding of the, what labor value is as a property of a commodity, a reproducible commodity. But I think once you look at it from a mathematical point of view and formalize it that way, you, it's it's easier to see it as a something like a field, a property of a field. And and the metaphor here or the ana physical analogy would be something like the Ian Wright, for instance, has pointed out. If if you think of an object with mass, it doesn't have it's weightless if there's no gravity around. Uh, so if you have a gravitational field, you get a property. It 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 uh, gives a property to the object. And so the analogy with um, labor values is that reproducible goods and services they have no labor value unless they are in a production in a field, and this field happens to be the field of social production. Uh, and you can actually formalize it when you when you write out the labor values. Um, and it looks like actually a vector field that you integrate over and you get a bunch of labor values in that sense. And so you can actually view labor values as a field property or a property of a field um, when it comes to the goods and services in the economy. Um, that, that, that's pretty interesting. Like, uh, forgive me if I'm misunderstanding this, but uh, you know, Marx would say that things only have value because of the setup of the society in a you know in 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 a capitalist form say well not necessarily just a capitalist form but they only have value because they're in a certain context exactly so, you know if I, if I if I build a table in my house uh, and we're living in in, in in I'm a peasant in the middle of nowhere or something. It has essentially no value as a commodity. It's just it's use value to me, and it's the it's the field of exchange and capitalist product capitalist relations that actually uh, assign the value to that object that I've expanded my labor on. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's precisely what I was trying to say, uh, and that there's now a, a sort of more formal mathematical side to this argument, uh, which is quite. And does neat. it does it throw out anything interesting or it's just kind of mathematically formalizes the the language um i wouldn't say necessarily i can't, haven't thought through whether it actually produces some new predictions um but it it, it just 
helps us articulate more clearly what value really is as in terms of a field property. And you can sort of argue that it's not necessarily exchange as such that does it. It's the fact that you have an economy based on a division of labor where no unit of production can reproduce itself on the one hand and where so labor can be redeployed across the economy. Then you have a scalar quantity that 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 is um, that is universal in a sense. You can you need not speak of uh, carpenter labor, uh, whatever specific painting labor. You can speak of labor in general. And so the moment you you can have redeployable labor, it's easy to set up this field, and then you get this potential uh, property for goods and services. And then it's a question of whether this property has any empirical consequences. And we argue yes, it has. Well, no, it's very interesting. It's like the, uh, well, I think David Hilbert, mathematician, applied to Marx. That, that's kind of, <laughs> you, you're just formalizing yeah, all it. those words. I haven't seen uh, many uh, papers on this uh, specifics, but I'm thinking of writing it up together with Ian. We'll see how it, how it unfolds. You'll have to put me in touch with this Ian guy, and I'll have to try and read some stuff. Um, he's done some amazing work. I think uh, since Farjan McElroy, I think he has done some of the most interesting, not necessarily empirical work, but uh, theoretical or computational work in terms of agent-based modeling. So from very basic principles, can you can you reproduce features that you see in a capitalist economy, assuming almost nothing about individuals? And he has this fantastic paper in, uh, I think, Physica A about the social architecture of capitalism, which is, uh, I think, a must-read for anyone interested in political economy. Yeah, that's very interesting because I've often, well, I've taught it myself about, uh, like, I, I would always love to have uh, kind of formalized Marx's work into an agent-based model and see what it, what it would look like. Um, I'm glad to see someone has done it. Yeah, someone has done it, yeah. And it's <laughs> yeah. absolutely spectacular. Even though it's very simplistic, doesn't assume much, it produces so many features that we know, the, the division of classes, the um, typical rates of unemployment, uh, the growth, uh, the size of firms, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, numerous features are reproduced in a very simple agent-based uh, economy. Very interesting. Um, well, thanks very much, Dave, for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I'll just kick us off uh, air now. I mean, uh, how do I stop broadcasting? <laughs>